0: This is fun. We're going to have such a great time, even tonight after the session. Uh, We have a huge game planned, and I know you guys are excited about that. Uh, But we have work to do. So will you open your Bible? Open your Bible to John chapter 3. I think it's good work. I think it's important work. It's work that was taking time uh, this morning, and so... I'm sorry, last night, and so we need to finish the passage that we were in. And though I had planned on bringing you a totally different message tonight, it seems to be God's plan to speak to us further from John chapter 3. It's a story that's familiar to us because we already spent an hour on it, but we only looked at the first point. Uh, Remember, we approached this chapter trying to understand what it is to be born again and why this camp has always been called Regen or Regeneration, because it's been our prayer and our heart's desire that the Lord would use His Spirit and His Word to accomplish new life in young people's experience here at the camp, that you would truly be confronted with your spiritual state, and you would know whether you're a Christian or not. And so we've gathered year after year to talk about the new birth, and to talk about regeneration, the act of God upon the soul of man that brings us to spiritual life. And we saw when we were together last night that the new birth was necessary. That's where it began for us, was looking at the necessity of the new birth. And we saw that it was necessary because Jesus Christ knows us perfectly and completely. And in talking to some of the leaders today and in some of the students who were listening last night and and asking them what it was that they understood about last night and what they needed clarified, we we heard a lot of the same things repeated that students had been saying. Uh, Some had said after hearing what God said in John chapter 3 that they weren't sure if they had been born again or not. Some had made a profession of faith, some had not. Uh, One student uh, said that God his goodness was clear to him, but he didn't really understand just how bad his sin really was. And that's something that we saw in Jesus' confrontation with this teacher of Israel. You know, I want to I begin tonight by telling you a story about a young man, your age actually, a young man named George. His name was George, he lived in England, and he was a teenager. And he grew up not that different than yourself. Uh, He was surrounded by religion, but he chose to be around friends who were irreligious, who were not Christians, who were sin-loving kind of people. And as is often the case, when you surround yourself with those kind of people, they have a tendency to drag you down more than you have a tendency to lift them up, right? And that was the case with George. And as he entered into his teenage years, he started to realize how much he had become like his sinful friends. They would get drunk, uh, they would participate in every kind of sinful activity. Uh, They would involve themselves in in acts of unkindness. Uh, One of the great memories that sticks out in George's mind as a teenager was uh, just the meanness of his friends to poor beggars on the streets, the things that they would say, the things that made them laugh. And he was falling into that. But George was aware of God. And he was aware of God's holiness, and the increasing awareness that he had of God's holiness, of God's perfection, was mirrored by his increasing awareness of the blackness of his own heart. And this increasing awareness reminded him that there was this massive chasm between uh, George and God, between this sinful human being and his perfect sinless, righteous, holy creator. And George decided he would change. He grit his teeth and he tried to be different. You know, he, like some of you, was just enslaved to his lusts and his desires. And so he decided he would cut himself off from every pleasure. Anything that was good, he wanted to get rid of in his life. Anything that, that gave him joy, gave him pleasure. So even uh, foods that he normally liked, he abstained from. He, if something was, was his favorite, he'd eat the opposite of that thing. On even little choices like that, on clothes that he wore, he, he would wear dirty clothes so he would feel uncomfortable, so aware of how undeserving he was and how sinful he was. He denied himself every possible luxury, eating foods he didn't like. He even spent two days a week fasting completely. He gave away all his money to the poor, and he even would stay awake at times and spend entire nights in prayer. He wanted to change, and he thought by causing himself to suffer, he might be able to earn God's favor. Sometimes he would sleep on wet grass outside in the cold, but every day and every week that went by in this human effort to change, he knew it. He knew it in his heart of hearts. That he wasn't really different. That there had been no change in him at all. But one day, his friend, Charles, gave him an old book. An old book. A tiny, slender little book. Maybe even a booklet. Written by a man with a funny name. Henry Skugel. No offense if your last name is Skoogl. The name of the book was The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Did you catch that? The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And George read it with amazement and enthusiasm. He knew he needed to be different. And he knew now through the reading of this book and uh, the scriptures that Christ needed to change him and that he could not change himself. And then one day it happened. And he wrote in his journal and described it this way. This is what George said. After having undergone uncountable sufferings by day and night. God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and burden of sin and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold on his dear son. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, I was filled when the weight of sin left me, an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in on my disconsolate soul. His biographer would later tell us that his first act in his overwhelming joy, having been born again, was to write to all his relatives and say to them all, I have found that there is such a thing as the new birth." That young teenager's name was George Whitfield, and he became one of the best-known evangelists in Christian history. His ministry was used of God to convert uncountable numbers of people in England and in the American colonies as he went back and forth across the ocean in in a time when that was incredibly dangerous and difficult because of his love for Christ and his concern for the souls of men. And everywhere George Whitefield went, he would preach that you must be born again. One lady who'd heard him multiple times speak on the same subject came up to him and asked him, "Uh, Mr. Whitfield, why do you always preach that men and women must be born again? And he answered her by saying, because men and women must be born again. And so we look again at John chapter 3. Reminded that every single person who's going to see the face of God with favor will only do so if they have received the life of God in the soul of men. An excellent definition for that big fancy theological word, regeneration. It's when God meets your greatest need in a way that only he can. You are a sinner by nature and by choice, dead in your sins, a child of the wrath of God, uh, deserving of the just punishment from God, your creator, because you've personally offended his holiness, and you're not able to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God. God, unless there's a divine and supernatural change in your heart that God alone can work. And it's when he gives his life to you, the life of God and the soul of man. And it was right in the middle of the conversation with Nicodemus that we left off. Let's catch up by looking at John chapter 3, verse 1, and I'll read you through verse 10 again. There was a man... Of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. So reads the word of the living God. I mean, we met Nicodemus last time and we heard his story and we listened in on his conversation with the author of the new birth. Jesus had cleansed the temple. Jesus had demonstrated that it is necessary for each one of us to be born again because his omniscience demands it. And we saw that at the end of chapter two as crowds of people gathered around Jesus and, and believed in him. But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them because we learned that there's such a thing as fake faith, spurious believers, false disciples those who will hear those most frightful words, I never knew you. And then the evangelist, John, who wrote this letter, this gospel witness, gives us an exhibit, a real-life exhibit, not of men in general, but a man specifically, a perfect example of a man who proves to us the absolute necessity of being born again. His name was Nicodemus. And Jesus wasn't fooled by his flattery because of his profound insight and omniscience in the human heart. And Jesus, in his interaction with Nicodemus, showed us that he had an x-ray vision to Nicodemus' own heart. And he demanded of Nicodemus that he be born again. And though Nicodemus was a very religious man, a very spiritual man, though Nicodemus was a a lawful and a Bible-believing man, Though Nicodemus had great knowledge of God and his word and his workings throughout history with his people, and though Nicodemus had tremendous gifts as a teacher, and though Nicodemus had great understanding of so many nuances of theological truth, and though Nicodemus had a position of authority in this society, and though Nicodemus would have been a man of some integrity, though he was religious and spiritual and conservative, educated, educated and involved, influential and orthodox, virtuous and honored, respected and scholarly, fastidious and lawful, Nicodemus, friends, remember Nicodemus was lost. He was dead in his sins and transgressions. And Jesus is no respecter of persons. He did not look at Nicodemus' credentials as a relative of Abraham and count Abraham's faith as sufficient for Nicodemus. He did not look at Nicodemus's involvement in the religious life of Israel and say, oh, he's good enough. And Jesus did not compare Nicodemus to other sinners who are worse than him. Instead, Nicodemus looked into the eyes of this man coming to inquire in who this man was and investigate what his messianic claims were all about, Jesus flips the conversation on Nicodemus and exposes his great spiritual need teaching him and us that all of us apart from Christ are dead in our trespasses and sins, in the lusts of our flesh and indulging in the desires of our flesh and the mind. And we're by nature, children of wrath, dead in our transgressions, separate from Christ, having no hope without God in the world. And we decided last night that that's good news, didn't we? Because if we're bad people, that's good news. Because those are the kind of people that God saves. And so Jesus explains to Nicodemus that though he thinks he knows all about God's kingdom, the saving realm of God, the place where God abides, a topic of great interest to the Jews of Jesus' day, he couldn't even see it, much less enter it, apart from being born again. And the new birth is indeed from above. That was the word we looked at. Remember, it was an othen. It was from above. The new birth is something that God accomplishes And he does so by his divine power, by giving life. And this stunning and radical truth was a confrontation to Nicodemus. Because in verse 4, remember what Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus was a great teacher of Israel. He had an almost exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament And he certainly wasn't so feeble-minded as to take Jesus' words as woodenly literal. He understood the metaphor and the rhetoric of, of Jesus the rabbi and asks an excellent question that revealed his heart. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus's religion consisted of human effort, not divine accomplishment. Nicodemus is saying, I'm too old to start again. I'm too old for a makeover here. I'm too old for another start. How could I possibly begin again? Because in Nicodemus' mind, it was about obedience to the law. Careful obedience to the law in addition to the traditions that the Pharisees had added onto the law. And he thought maybe he needed another start, another attempt to live the law of God. But this is a fundamental understanding of what it means to be saved, to be the recipients of the grace of God in conversion, in regeneration, in the new birth. The new birth is not just another beginning. It's an entirely different nature. And Nicodemus missed it. And so Jesus reasserts the truth synonymously in verse five when he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter. You see, Nicodemus came thinking he saw something about Jesus, and Jesus has already told him, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, and you certainly cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and the blood. Nicodemus couldn't comprehend it and cannot experience it apart from this divine change, and neither can you. It's why some of you dear young people are so indifferent to the truth being preached at this camp. It's why one young man can approach me afterwards with tears in his eyes, broken over his sin, and another with a crass and cavalier attitude and complete indifference. It's the work of God on the heart. And you can't understand the kingdom apart from this divine and supernatural change. It's a universal necessity. Nicodemus' question receives Jesus' instruction, not only on the necessity of the new birth, what we talked about last time, but what we need to talk about tonight, the nature of the new birth. And that's what I see in verses 6 through 10, the nature of the new birth. Look at verse 6. After speaking of water and the Spirit, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Those words, the water and the Spirit, you don't necessarily have to capitalize Spirit there, but it's not unhelpful to do so. In verse 5, what's simply happening is Jesus is opening up the Old Testament to a man who had much of it memorized. And though so many people have been confused by this reference to water and spirit, is it some reference to baptism in the Old Testament or Jewish traditions around baptism or something about John the Baptist's baptism or maybe an anachronistic approach to Christian baptism? Lots of confusion has surrounded these phrases, but I think he's simply restating and expanding what Jesus already said in verse 3. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is no reference to baptism. It would be an odd one if it was. In the Bible, baptism speaks of death, not birth. And Christian baptism had not yet been instituted. This also isn't a reference to physical birth. In order to say a Nicodemus must be physically born to be born again, that's completely obvious. But this is a reference to an Old Testament passage where water and spirit come together. And it's not just one passage, it's it's many passages that you can find throughout the book of Isaiah, throughout the prophet's ministry, where water is a symbol of, of life given to uh, a thirsty land, to streams that bring sustenance and, and cleansing to God's people, coupled with a reminder of God's spirit. And it's always a spirit that gives life and brings uh, bounty to God. To the descendants of Israel, but the passage that had to be most on Jesus' mind would have been one that Nicodemus would have known very, very well. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll just read you a portion of it. It says, I will take you from the nations. This is a promise that God is giving to Ezekiel about a future restoration of the nation of Israel, a nation in Ezekiel's day that was in captivity, far, far away from obedience to God. But God is reminding Ezekiel that his glory will return and it will be on his people and a time will come when they will obey from the heart. And so he says, I will take you, God says, from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's that word water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see how much this passage has in common with our passage in John 3, speaking of spirit and flesh and water? Yet he goes on. God says in his promise to Ezekiel that he will put his spirit within his people and. Cause them to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is a passage that promises that God will restore Israel to the Lord through the new covenant. It has individual fulfillment every time that someone comes to faith in Christ. Every time that God works miraculously in regeneration, it is no accident that Ezekiel 36 is followed by Ezekiel 37. That's not just good seminary and math. Ezekiel 37 is a story about a whole bunch of pieces of bones and skeletons, a a skeletonized army. It sounds interesting to you now, right? Something on TV maybe. All kinds of yucky, dry bones in this valley and at God's command, because of God's word, these bones assemble and regenerate and become a living, breathing, standing army. It's a passage of spirit and water, of life and regeneration of taking out a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh this cleansing through the word this idea of water closely associated with cleansing and washing of the soul and the spirit that gives life unleashes a torrent of truth throughout the entirety of Scripture John 15 3 the cleansing power of God's word Ephesians 525 the washing of the word and all of it Titus 3 5 done by the the Spirit of God, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus of a, prob- a promise that he should be very familiar with, a promise that is being fulfilled before his very eyes, that the law will be written on our hearts, that there'll be cleansing and renewal and Jesus and his Spirit will give life and that the flesh profits nothing And so what is this new birth? Well, it's by God's promise. A promise rooted and grounded in Old Testament revelation. A promise that Nicodemus should have known all about. And so Jesus corrects him and even chastises him, showing him what his great need is. Look at verse 6. Not only is the nature of the new birth by God's promise, it's also by God's spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that the nature of the new birth is first by God's promise, Ezekiel 36, and second, it's by God's spirit. God's spirit is the agent that causes the new birth to take place. We already understand this because Jesus told us that the new birth is anothen, from above. Well, God's spirit is from above, and by saying flesh begets flesh, he's simply reminding us of something you already understand. It's the difference between generation and regeneration. Cows make more Cows, you're good. Are you you a farmer? It's impressive. Apple trees make more apples. And then the seeds fall and they grow more apple trees. People make more people. That's generation, generation, generation. Flesh begets flesh begets flesh. Flesh does not give birth to spirit. He's further teaching Nicodemus and teaching us that 10,000 new beginnings. If you could start this life over, even if you could have the information that you have now, if you had another crack at it, another try at this life, the same weary results would be produced. You cannot obey enough. You cannot observe enough. You cannot do enough, earn enough, be enough. You are a sinner by nature and by choice, and it requires a complete transformation from the inside out. Flesh begets flesh, but spirit begets spirit. Young people, you can praise God that you have not fallen into sinful habits for decades yet, most of you. But even if you do, and I pray you don't, you might be able to overcome an addiction to drugs. You might be able to lose weight or stop smoking. But Jesus says in John 8 that he who sins is a slave of sin. It means that sin owns you. Sin is your master. And try as you might, you will never overcome your addiction to sin. You are sin's slave. Sin will defeat you. Flesh begets flesh. Lust, pride, selfishness only find their answer in the transforming power of the Spirit. Because the new birth is by God's promise and by God's Spirit Flesh produces flesh, but spirit produces spirit. And the fact of the matter is that man's faith is not the cause of the new birth. It is not a fresh start. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not getting a new lease on life. It's not a fresh start. It's a new heart. It's a divine and permanent change. It's not reformation. It's regeneration. It's the life of God in the soul of man. It's new inclinations and new desires and new habits wrought by the spirit of of God. Verse three, chapter 3, verse 7, do not be amazed, he says to Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus is on his heels because of Jesus's words. He cannot believe and take in that there is this much required that he cannot accomplish. His religion is one of human effort and achievement, but Jesus is demanding a change that comes from God and God alone. And this is because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is because, as John has already taught in the first chapter, that to all who received him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, same language, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God the source is heavenly and the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and we're shut out because we're sinful fleshly creatures unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God the nature of the new birth is by God's promise it's by God's spirit and it's by God's choice verse 8 he gives us an illustration the wind blows where it wishes And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus makes this illustration before the weatherman was on TV. But I think it still works. Because though we have some understanding and ability to predict the wind... It's going to be windy tomorrow, chance of rain, they say, and sometimes, maybe even many times, they're right. The weatherman, in my experience, has never been able to say, but we don't want a windy day, so I'm going to go ahead and shut this down. Channel 7, working for you. Click. That's scary and weird, and it could never happen. Because though we may know lots of things about the jet stream, we don't know how to turn it off. We can't stop the wind. And the word wind in Greek is uh, same as the word for the spirit. And so he's making a play on words here. He's trying to show us that there's something about the wind, two things at least. The wind is mysterious, and we don't know where exactly it originates, where it comes from. We don't have a complete and thorough understanding of how God does this when the wind blows, but more importantly, we are not sovereign over the wind. We can't control it, we can't stop it, and we can barely predict it. In Southern California, how many of you are from Southern California? How many of you are not from Southern California? Okay, those of you who are not are from a place where you have something called autumn, okay? In Southern California, we have not autumn. We have something called hot Satan winds. It's true, Viento Satan is what the Spanish called them when they came to California. And in the fall, instead of the crisp, cool air of the other places, we do not get apples ripe on the trees and start to put away things for the freeze. Instead, we go to the beach and deal with the Satan winds it's hot, horrible wind. And if we could, we would shut it off, but we can't because there is a mystery and a sovereignty to the wind. And the Spirit's work is parallel to this. Where it comes from and where it goes remains mysterious, mysterious, sovereign, and incomprehensible. Jesus speaks of the wind being unseen, but the effects of the wind being obvious. It's the same as God's work, God's Spirit's work in regeneration. It is God who acts sovereignly, not up to anyone, not up to you, not up to me, not up to those who would beg for it to take place. It is God who acts upon the dead human soul and causes it to raise to life. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. And what it should do more than anything else in your heart is embolden you as a missionary to your peers. To know that there is no kid at your school who is too hard to bow the knee to Christ because God can save anyone. Spoke to a young man today between sessions who was convinced he was too sinful to be saved. And honestly, I love to hear someone say that. I think it's proof that God's working in their heart, convicting them of their sin. I think it's such a better place to be than cold indifference. And this young man was broken over his sin and talking to me about it. And and he, he just thought his sin's worse, worse than anybody else's sin. And he doesn't know that I have, a, I have a homeboy named Thomas Manton. He's a dead homeboy, but I have him. And he's a Puritan, and he really helped me when I was a younger Christian, and I struggled with assurance. Especially as I learned about the sovereignty of God and about new birth. Some of you are saved. You're Christians. You love Jesus. And you've heard me kind of railing on this thing for two sermons, and you're, you're wondering, well, am I really a Christian? How, how do I apply this if I am a Christian? Well, I think understanding the sovereignty of God in salvation, understanding the nature and the necessity of the new birth, is only going to embolden you as an evangelist. And it really can be used of God to strengthen your assurance. So I looked at the young man today and, and asked him if he knew what a chief was. Because not everybody's from Indian country like me. Austin, we met, remember? I'm Austin. What's the chief? what's his job? Who's he in charge of? The Indians. Good. Good. You're really with me. Everybody go like this. Good. Thank you. The chief is in charge of Native Americans. What's the matter with you people? (laughs) Paul, in the New Testament, he used to be named Saul. He murdered Christians and hated Jesus and all his followers, was radically saved. He was born again. And he said that he is the chief of sinners. He's the head one. He's the worst one. He's over all the other sinners. And so I told my friend today, you can't be him. You're not worse than him and God saved him. You're less than him. If God can save the chief of sinners, Thomas Manton taught me, then he can save any other sort of lesser sinner. And if you wonder if the gospel is for you, if you wonder about the nature of God's sovereignty and if if his mercy is, is directed towards you, well, I want to ask you, is the gospel for you? I'll never forget what Manton said on that page of that book when I was just a high school student. Manton said, <laughs> Jesus told the disciples, preach the gospel to every creature in the Great Commission. And my guy Manton, he says to me, are you among the rank of creatures? So I ask you that question. Are you a creature? You are. Is the gospel for you? It is. You see, creatures, sinners, sinners, The gospel is for you. And these new inclinations and new desires and new habits can be wrought only by the Spirit of God. And it only happens by God's sovereign choice and this is good news because it's never by man's effort James 1:18. in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits among all his creation friend I don't want to get weird here but what did you do to be born physically you're high schoolers not junior hires we can talk about the grown-up stuff what did you do? Okay, don't think about it anymore, it's not, not healthy. You didn't do anything. You were not there. You were not involved. The initiative lay outside of you. Likewise, the new birth is totally a work of God. To all who received him, John 1, 12 again, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or as Peter said in his letter, you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The new birth, the nature of the new birth is by God's promise, rooted in the Old Testament salvation plan that he worked before the fall ever took place that he instituted through his people Israel and he brought to its fullness and to its revelation in the coming of his son the full revelation of God it is by his spirit from above and it is by his sovereign choice and finally it's through the death of God's own son verse 10 says You don't understand the new birth, Nicodemus. Yet you're the teacher of Israel. See, Jesus identifies Nicodemus as lost. And the conversation suddenly, suddenly stops there. Nicodemus is incredulous, scratching his head. And Jesus indicts him as a disqualified teacher because he doesn't understand the new birth. But John, I can't wait to get to heaven when I get to meet the evangelist who wrote the gospel of John, the disciple that Jesus loved. I can't wait. He's probably my favorite writer ever. He tells this story because he knew this story, because he was there as an eyewitness. And in the verses that follow, after verse 10, Jesus is still speaking but by the time we get to verse 16, it becomes apparent that John can't stop preaching. You see, John knows how this story ends. And John is weaving together under the inspiration of the Spirit, this amazing tale of why people ought to put their faith in Christ and how he is God's only way of salvation. And so listen to how this unfolds. Jesus speaking and then John bringing in the Old Testament and John bringing in what's going to happen in just a mere amount of time when Jesus goes to the cross. John even looks all the way to Jesus' ascension unto heaven. John the preacher starts to preach because he knows that he cannot talk about the new birth without urging people to believe on the Lord Jesus and to place their faith in him because regeneration is only possible because Jesus paid the price for your sin. Listen to these words. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you still, people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, Jesus, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus is speaking there and he compares himself to a well-known story in the Old Testament where all the people complaining against Moses received poisonous snake bites. It's always a good reminder when you're tempted to complain to just think, well, would I really, really be complaining about this or would I rather have a poisonous snake bite? And in that story, there was only one cure. God told Moses to lift up a bronze statue of a snake. And anyone who is willing to look at that snake, that bronze staff with the snake head on top, would receive God's cure and be healed of this poisonous venom. That phrase, lifted up, is used throughout John's gospel. And in the other place it's used, it's only used to speak of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Why would Jesus compare himself to a sculpture of a snake? Well, one reason primarily, and that reason is found in verse 15. You see, the people who received those bites in the wilderness were facing death and the wrath of God. And the only solution, the only antidote, the only cure was to look upon the salvation that God had provided. And you, dear friends, and Nicodemus on this day and the crowds of harassed people that followed after Jesus and heard his teaching were in a similar situation. They had been bitten by the venomous snake bite of sin and their demise was sure as yours is. Sin will not only mess up your life and have earthly consequences. Sin will destroy you for all eternity as you endure the wrath of God in hell because that's exactly what we deserve as sinners. But the only solution is to look up to God's provision. Look up to the antidote. Look up to the Son of Man, the one who was lifted up, God of very God, a person who lived a perfect life and died in our place to become a substitute for us all who would trust in God's remedy this dialogue turns to a discourse and a battering ram as now John jumps on at this point I think and says for God so loved the world When you learn about the sovereignty of God and salvation, it's rooted and grounded in the love of God. His choice is rooted in his love. God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John goes further and says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John, like a battering ram, to your heart is begging you to place your faith in Jesus. But Duncan, you said that only God could do this. And herein is the mystery of God's sovereignty and your responsibility. He calls you to believe. The gospel to turn from your sins and not face condemnation and he speaks to you as if this offer is genuine and real you know why because it is the son of god has his arms outstretched to you the son of god was lifted up for you And you don't need a small change, but a renewal of your whole nature because there's nothing in you that isn't broken and defective and sinful. And you need your whole life cleansed and your heart transformed. And your act of believing and God's act of beginning are simultaneous. His doing is the cause of your doing. His beginning is the cause of your believing. And so I would urge you tonight, young people, call out to Jesus. The year was 384. And a baby was born in northern Africa, a town called Thagast. And his early years were consumed like yours were, full of school, lots and lots of school, because his parents made him go. His mom's name was Monica, and she prayed for him, and prayed for him and prayed for him. His dad was not a Christian. All he cared about was business and success. And Augustine, his name was, Went to school and did very well in school. He was a brilliant man. And as he grew into a teenager, he experienced what so many of you have experienced a desire and a battle with his flesh. Lust, pride, especially in relation to his studies and his abilities as an orator, consumed him. And when he was only a teenager, He met a girl, sort of a high-class prostitute, a concubine, they called him back then, and they fell in love, and they had a kid, and they lived together in sin for 15 years. But his mom kept praying for him, and she kept praying for this son of her tears, And then he moved to Carthage. Carthage was like Vegas, sin city. Augustine would later call it a, a seething cauldron of lust. And his sin was worse and worse and worse. He was surrounded by Christians, people who knew God, people who'd been born again, and you'd heard some stories that were circulating in those days about a monk named Antony, a, a guy who gave up everything, sold all he had, went out into the wilderness to be a missionary. And stories about this guy's godliness were legendary. And I don't know if they were true, but Augustine, it didn't matter. Augustine was so convicted by the example of someone who abstained from anything because Augustine was lustful after everything. He was so consumed by his sinful desires that he realized he had no control of himself. He had tried every hip philosophy that was out in his day. He'd been a Donatist. He'd been all kinds of neoplastics. Latinism. He had studied everything the universities offered him to study, yet he still was enslaved to his lusts. And then he hears these guys, friends of his, he's over at their house talking about Antony and it's driving him crazy because he's so aware that he's underneath the wrath of God for his sin and that he cannot stop sinning no matter how hard he tries. Every relationship he's in is sinful, his life is completely an antithesis to what god would have him do and be and he's tormented by it and he walked out into his friend's garden frustrated and he hears some little kids over the wall in the street singing a song part of a game or something saying tole lege tole lege tole legge. kids are weird and it meant in latin take up and read take up and read, take up and read. What kind of weird game is that? Sounds like something we do at camp. And Augustine hears that song and looks over to the bench in his friend's garden and sees a scroll. It was a scroll of Paul's letter to the Romans. And he just opened it up just so happened to open it up to a passage we know as Romans 13:13 13, 13. The paragraph says wake up from your slumber the night is nearly over the day is almost here So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then verse 13, cut him. Because it says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision Do not gratify the flesh. And in an instant, Augustine was reborn. He was born again. He would write in his confessions of his conversion with language like this. How sweet. He's praying this to God. How sweet. All at once it was for me. To be rid those fruitless joys. That's how he thought about his sin. To be rid those fruitless joys I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You, O God, who are the true, the sovereign joy. And you drove them from me and took their place. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Ever since Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, stories like that have been told over and over again as God seeks and saves sinners through the new birth. And I think one of the recipients of that salvation was Nicodemus. Nicodemus is mentioned twice more in John's gospel as a defender of Jesus' interests at the Feast of the Tabernacles in chapter seven, and later. For some reason, he's there at Jesus' burial with Joseph of Arimathea. And John even references him as the one who came to Jesus at first by night. And that's because church history and tradition tells us that Nicodemus didn't stay in the night. But that Nicodemus, this wealthy, rich, prosperous, religious Jewish leader lost everything because he became a disciple of Jesus. What about you? What's holding you back? What's weighing you down? What sin hisses in your ear and demands your obedience? What's worth it? What could you gain in this world and lose your own soul? Young people, it's the second night in a row that I've told you, and I'll say it again, you must be born again. Father, thank you for your word. To know that our spirits have been born into sin Imprisoned and enslaved to sin, fast bound. And will remain so until you set us free. So God, we pray that you would work savingly in the hearts and lives of these young people. May your amazing love reach into them. May they be convicted of their sin and confess and repent and place their faith in Jesus, the one who is lifted up. Your own provision, O God. Not by money, not by education, not by influence, not by church attendance can a man enter heaven, but only by the new birth. Cut that issue deep in us to our very heart. Show us our spiritual need we should declare ourselves bankrupt and call out to Jesus. God, we know lots of people are talking about heaven, but talking about heaven doesn't get you there. Can we glory in your sovereign grace? Can we look to the Son and may he set sinners free, free indeed.